Hello listeners and welcome to perhaps the most special episode we have ever done of The Partial Historians. Welcome, welcome. I'm Dr. G and beside me is Dr. Rad and today we're going to be talking about the consulship. And why are we talking about the consulship? Because we just turned 100! It's amazing, you're looking so young and fresh. <laughs> That's right, this is our 100th episode, listeners, so we thought we'd do something a bit different, a bit out of the ordinary, and the consulship seems like the perfect choice, Dr. G, because there were supposedly two of them. And, and there's two of us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about this topic because I feel like in terms of our narrative history of Rome, we've been talking a lot about consuls because they come up every year. They're the flagship. Yeah. But what do they really do? Mm. I mean, in this early period, it seems like a lot of warfare, <laughs> uh, but that can't be all there is to it. A lot of Romans seem to do a lot of warfare. What sets the consuls apart? <laughs> yeah, is it the togas that they wear while they do it? <laughs> well, this is what we're going to look into this episode. So to start off with, I'm going to delve well into the future of where we're currently at in our narrative, Dr. G. <gasps> I know. And talk about a pretty famous incident regarding the consulship. This is probably something that some people might have even heard of, even if they're not like Roman historians or anything. Once upon a time, there was an emperor named Gaius Caligula. Oh, little boots. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, this guy was related to Julius Caesar and Augustus and this whole crew. He's one of, the, one of the early emperors. But he's pretty notorious because he was supposedly a bit mad. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was the whipping of the sea and stuff and collecting seashells. But I don't think that's the story that you're driving for. <laughs> Not exactly, no, no. There is a particular story that revolves around him and the consulship. So supposedly, if you ask, you know, if you ask people about Caligula, one of the things that he did that marked out how crazy he was, was that he made his favorite horse in Catatus a consul. Nay! <laughs> the nays have it. Exactly. The nays have yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was such a big deal because the consulship is like the highest honor that any Roman man could ever hope to achieve, even under the empire. So this is a huge outrage that he has committed. Now, if we delve into the source material, of which is largely Suetonius, it turns out that he just mentions the idea of maybe making his horse a consul. And it might have been a bit of a burn, to be honest, <laughs> aimed at the senators to be like, you guys are all freaking useless. He never actually went ahead with it. But nonetheless, the story has sort of stuck that the Emperor Caligula tried to make his horse a consul. I think this even came up when Saturday Night Live had Justin Timberlake on once, I think. Oh, goodness. I know. Oh, well, I'm, I'm well out of the loop with culture <laughs> in this regard. I don't know. I um, could be wrong about that, but anyway. But it yeah. is fascinating because, and I suppose the question that we're asking initially is why were the Roman elites so offended by this? Exactly. And there are some pretty good reasons for that. And in order to understand where that offensiveness or that feeling of offense comes from, mm -hmm. we really need to go back and look at what actually makes the consul a consul. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to now rewind and go all the way back to the beginning because the consulship did become like just such a preeminent position. You can't overstate it. Is it I mean, it is the peak of someone's career for a long time uh, in Rome's history. Um, so much so that 
if you had, you know, a consular ancestor in your family, you would probably have some sort of like wax imagery or like a funerary mask made of them. And you'd have it on display in your home and you'd trot it out when there were special occasions. You know? You'd make sure all your guests had to walk past all of your consular ancestors exactly. every time you had a dinner party. Yeah, exactly. So it really is something that you would advertise. It is the thing to have in your family to have a consul. <laughs> It is the most illustrious element of one's ancestry. And part of the reason for this is the fact that the consulship ends up being initially a replacement for the kingship. Yes. So listeners of our show might recall that when we started out talking about Rome and its journey from the founding of the city, we started talking about kings. There were supposedly seven of them, and the last one was not particularly good. (laughs) Yeah, look, Superbus has a lot to answer for. <laughs> yeah. So when they overthrow the monarchy, they obviously need some form of government. And, su- and the consulship is supposedly the replacement for the office of kings. Or was it, Dr. G? <laughs> <laughs> I, to some respect, yes. I mean, this is a lot of the way that uh, the ancient Romans, um, particularly in that post-regal period, are thinking about the consulship, is they're thinking about it as literally dividing up Uh, the prestige and the power base of the king and Mm. splitting it between a couple of people to make sure that nobody can ever be the sole ruler again. Exactly. King is a dirty word. It is a very dirty word. Nobody's naming their child Rex. (laughs) Sad. Very sad. Um, A great name for a child, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, there is a lot of accusations early on in this very early Republican period. So, like, we're talking, like, post-509 of patricians arguing against each other about somebody taking on more power than they should whilst holding the consulship and thus making a grab to be king. Exactly. And this is always the thing that the Romans become concerned about. You know, this is what characterizes the Republic really all the way through, although obviously at some points it gets more tense than others. But they're always scared of someone getting too much power and becoming a tyrant like the kings had like the kings had been, basically. Uh, And, you know, they're not completely wrong to feel this way. People do try and grab more power than they should have. So they're not just being paranoid. (laughs) Yeah, it's not just... Yeah, there's certainly no paranoia here, I don't think. I mean, well, maybe there's paranoia. There is paranoia. There's also pragmatism. Yeah, there's a reason for it. Um, So one of the ways in which they try to counter this idea is by having two consuls at any one time. Yeah. And then also by putting a term limit on how long the consul can be in power. Yeah, which is supposedly for a year. And this is why they end up, uh, I mean, presumably why they end up using the consuls as a way of sort of dating when things happen, basically. Yeah, Yeah. but also this gets hazy as well, because we've got lots of exceptions to the one year, like holding consular power rule, particularly early on. So like when we're hitting like it's 509 and everyone's like, the Republic begins, but does it? Because (laughs) we have Publius Valerius Publicola, Holding the consulship for at least a couple of years in a row. Yeah. well, Holding know. things together for everybody. It's early days. We need some glue. We need some glue to hold this tenuous system We don't know how this together. works yet. Yeah. <laughs> you could have another colleague. Okay, okay. But yeah, so in theory, these guys are meant to be equal in power. Uh, and that's not just in terms of, of the power that, that they hold. It's also in terms of the fact that they're supposedly able to veto each other. So they can sort of knock each other out of contention if one of them's proposing something that... Nobody likes. <laughs> yeah, so they have this power to go against each other, yeah. knock down these ideas. 
Uh, and this this might be a good time to talk a little bit about the etymology of Ooh, yes. yeah of console. <laughs> yeah, um, there is a few theories about where the term comes from. Mm-hmm. One is from consulare in terms of the translation from Latin is care, so mm-hmm. almost like they're a custodian, and that's that's quite a nice sort of way of thinking about it. Although it doesn't really encompass everything about their power, and. One of the other popular ways to think about the etymology is consulare with the different meaning of Mm. to ask for advice. Yeah, that's the way I always sort of thought about it. Like, these are the guys that you go to if you have a problem. (laughs) Yeah. And so, but you're asking advice on just about anything because the consulship in its really early form is pretty much the only real magistracy they have. Mm. So we get lots of magistrates later on that are part of what the consul used to do. Yes. Um, so we've got the praetor, yeah. which seems to be the military arm. Mm-hmm. Originally, that's just the consul as well. Yeah. Things like the quaestor yeah. come out of the consulship. The censorship comes out of the consulship. Yes. And the idea of any sort of judicial power in terms of like running a law court, originally that's the consuls as well. Yeah. And that gets delegated out. So, well, I think it's because originally, like we've been talking about, Rome is so small that you probably could have, you know, a limited amount of people dealing with all of this stuff. We've got these two guys now, which is way better than one guy. That's a 100% <laughs> increase on your ability to get stuff done. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, as Rome expands and things become much more complicated, I mean, look, to be honest, as, as, as regular listeners of our show will, will appreciate, the very early period, whether it's monarchy or republic, is always very confusing because we're often dealing with things that are semi-mythological or made up, it seems, retroactively to try and explain how things are by the time we get into the early empire when a lot of these guys like Livy and Dionysus are writing. Um, so the evolution of the Roman state is really hard to try and pin down in any you know firm form because it, it is a gradual evolution where they they add things on and things evolve as they need them which makes complete sense the problem is our sources don't always like to reflect this gradual development like sometimes they try and tell it in a way that makes a bit more sense or it comes together a bit more you know cohesively yeah and i think yeah. this is a function of the way that roman historiography really takes off when we get to about sort of like the third and second centuries BC. Exactly. And they've got to somehow deal with this earlier period of history for which there's not a lot of good, strong written records that they can consult or they're not sure where to look. Mm. And what is history anyway? And so, yeah. Oh, the big questions. (laughs) Don't ask us. Please don't ask us. Um, So we've got what is which is this sort of movable feast of evolution Mm. of the consulship into different permutations and then gradual splintering away into slightly different magistracies and this expanding complexity and it's like so there is no one single answer to what is the consul exactly and there's a lot of debate around when this this name for this position started to even be used i mean as you sort of highlighted there is there is a theory that originally this main magistracy was actually the praetor, like that the name, the consul, or, or this exact understanding of the consulship evolved like quite quite a bit down the track in the Republic. Um, and that perhaps there was some sort of position called a praetor maximus, um, and that this was the person um, who was kind of in charge. And we have 
vague references to this position in uh, in sources like Livy, the most awesome source. <laughs> uh, Varrow also goes down that path. Yeah. As well. um, just throwing another one Shh, in Dr. there. G, don't ruin Livy's glory. Cicero also <laughs> refers to the consulship <laughs> as the praetorship at various times. But it's times. mostly Livy. I mean, come on. Well, yeah. look, I'll give Livy his due. He's definitely very responsible yeah so he talks about the like this old law existing where um in during uh on the eyes of september that the praetor maximus would come out and like hammer a nail in the temple um on the capital line and this seems to have something to do with like 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 the dating of the years as like some sort of symbolic gesture and that might stem from as you talked about the fact that the praetor does seem to have some sort of maybe military function because it seems to stem from this um this word of like pray or i go before i go before you into battle or something like that um so that probably gives you a hint listeners that the consulship particularly in the earlier republic in whatever form it was or this like main magistracy was some sort of combination of civic and military functions um, and, and also has, they're not a, it's not a religious office, but they do also perform like religious rites and that sort of thing as the head of the state. Yeah, this is the sort of thing where our ideas about separation of religion and state uh, is the wrong approach when we're thinking about the Roman world, regardless mm. of what your level of citizenship is or how important a functionary role you have in Roman society, there's always going to be a spiritual and sacrificial component. Yeah. Um, it's really important for the consuls at certain points, once it becomes firmly established as a position, to engage in lustrums, to conduct sacrifices, to consult other priesthoods about certain matters. Yeah. You can't go to war unless you've really consulted the fediales. Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. Is this a holy war? Let's find out. Um so there's a sense in which this is um, sort of stretching over a whole bunch of categories of um, activity that we would probably think of as quite discreet, but from a Roman perspective, need to be integrated, this sacrificial and civic sort of role. Absolutely. And, and this is a world where, the let's face it, when we're talking about any of these positions, whether you're a censor or a quaestor or an aedile or a consul, whoever you are, you don't get paid for this job. That's a really crucial thing. Um, excuse me? I know. <laughs> it sounds cray-cray, but this is It's true. like they run their own podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically these guys are doing it for the honour of it, which means that you have to be a wealthy person to fulfil this position. So this is why we really do get a monopolization of elite political roles and also elite religious roles because the, the only guys that have the time and the leisure and the money to do all of these kinds of things that are not paid positions are elite people yeah you've got to be pretty well set up um you basically have to fund it yourself and yeah so it's actually costing you money <laughs> again like running your own podcast yeah, it, it, it will cost you money um you have to raise the levies yourself um if you want to you you might want to implement a tax as consul of mm, some kind. Sure. Um, and that's fine. You may be able to do that, but you wouldn't be able to just uh, impose that upon the people. Um, the other thing that is important to keep in mind with thinking about the consulship is that they're always operating in tandem with the Senate. 
Mm, yes. Very so much. if you if you want to tax the citizenry because something is expensive and you're trying to do your job and you're like it's a dutiful thing, uh, but it's important that we have the funds for it, the Senate will also have to be involved, which means another elite body. Um, of quite wealthy citizens uh, sitting around having a chat, being like, well, I don't know, should we tax the people? Yeah, and and the Senate Senate eventually, I mean, as we've talked about before, we don't really 100% know where the Senate come from either. (laughs) They they do also evolve in this very hazy early period where we can't be 100% sure about, like, who these people are and why I sense they were another special episode coming up soon. <laughs> exactly. Um, but eventually, a lot of people who are senators will be ex-magistrates. So people who have served in some capacity in you know one of these roles um, and therefore are like members for life. Yeah, yeah. and I suppose yeah. one of the things that we see about the early consulship in particular is that we see the same sorts of people holding it over and over again. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any limitations early on about how often you could be consul. Well, I mean, let's face it. Again, Rome is fairly small and only a small, wealthy, <laughs> educated class of people are really going to be suitable um, or considered for this position. Um, and so there's only a limited amount of... I mean, even when you go further into the Republic and, you know, things are expanding and there are more and more people and the population is growing, we're still talking about a really tiny amount of families that are even going to be eligible for this position, which BTW you get elected into. That's the other... You know, that's another thing, which... We talked about this before with the Roman kingship. The Roman kingship was never, you know, strictly speaking, like a dynastic one where you had... I mean, yes, you had sort of family connections sometimes, but you were also chosen for the position. Uh, the consulship is like that too. It's not, it's not a hereditary position we're talking about. Yeah, and I think... So if we're thinking about how the consulship works, one mm. of the things that's important about it is that we've got the Comitia Centuriata. Ah, uh, Yes. Uh, which is the the way in which uh, a consul gets voted in. Because you're like, I can hear you thinking to yourselves. You're like, well, this is cool. There's these two guys in charge, but how do they even get there? Yeah. It's like, they have to be rich. They have to come from the patrician class. They probably are chummy with the senators already. Yep. Um, so there is a period for nominations. Mm. Um, and usually in, this, in the very early period, so this is talking about like sort of like 4th century yep. BCE, um, you've got... A sort of a system in place where one person is put in absolute charge for a very short period of time mm. called the Interax. Mm. And their job is basically to source the nominations for the consulship. And this is a bit of a hangover from the kingship too. Like, because they used to have, obviously, Interax, like, in between the kings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this becomes like a quasi sort of, like, yeah. magisterial position of, like, a caretakership. Yeah. Of, like, well, we've got some outgoing consuls. Yeah. We don't have new consuls yet, mm. but somebody needs to be in charge while yeah. we figure out who will be the next consuls. Totally, yeah. Maybe we could have that guy <laughs> for a period of, like, maybe three months maximum. Yeah, yeah. And so that guy's job is to talk to the senators, find out who they would really like to be the consuls. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how this works. It's basically a vote from within the Senate Mm. between themselves. They put up candidates that they prefer (laughs) and they see how they go. Yeah, and then this is something that we have talked about before, but it was a long time ago, so you might not remember. The Comitia Centuriata is also uh, an electoral... The whole electoral process with this particular people's assembly is weighted in favour of the rich. <laughs> so, no bas- comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, the first couple of classes have, which are the wealthiest classes, have the bulk of the votes. 
Okay, and once you get a majority, you basically stop voting, like, because there's no point, because you've got, like, a majority rule thing happening. Yeah, so every every century has to vote in order, yeah. and they're, and they're oh, well. ordered by prestige. <laughs> yeah. And so this means that as you go further down, and it's open voting as well, this is not a secret ballot, no. so <laughs> it's very obvious who's voting for whom, yeah. and you can sense the weight of expectation, perhaps, as one of the groups down the back of the crowd... That doesn't sound just, intimidating at all! <laughs> ...just waiting for their turn to have a say, and realising that maybe that's just not ever going to happen and also for the groups further up that it's going to be important to demonstrate their allegiance Mm. uh, to other families or to people that they have connections with to make sure they're visibly voting for the right candidate because this is the thing Rome doesn't have political parties the way that we might imagine political parties to operate like the way that we see them operating in modern democracies however (laughs) they definitely have friendships you know, like political allegiances between families, between men that they've set up. And there's also this thing called the patron-client system where people who are higher up in society do favours for people that are lower down. I mean, I kind of like to think of it as being somewhat like, like their sort of you know, social welfare. It's kind of a pretty arbitrary system of social welfare. It's terrible, but it's like the closest thing they have in a way in that people who are lower down the scale obviously need help from time to time, like maybe getting a new business up and running or, you know, maybe they're actually freaking hungry or something like that. And they can potentially go to someone who is their friend who, as in friend, I'm using flesh rabbits here, um, who will do them a favor by maybe giving them some food or maybe even giving them some money if we're talking about like later on or help them, you know, get their business set up, whatever. And in return, all you got to do when you get to the, uh, to the election, (laughs) exactly. You've got to vote a certain way and you also need to follow your patron around to make sure that everybody knows that they're super important because they've got like an entourage following them. So there's all these weird dynamics that we need to take into consideration and are really hard to trace sometimes in the source material. I know. I'm just having these visions, though, of, like, you know, like some swanky dudes in their fancy togas walking around with their entourage, yeah. you know, <laughs> being very cool. Look, this is why when you look into Rome's history, you can really easily see how the mafia comes out of Italy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, so we, as this consulship develops... Uh, and it seems like other magistracies split off it, it also becomes a requirement. We get this general emergence of what we call the cursus honorum, mm, this yes. level of holding positions. Yeah. So got to work your way up. You've got to work your way up. Yeah. And so once it gets to a certain point where the consulship has been uh, sort of divested of a whole bunch of different sort of powers and they're now held by other people, it's important for you to be eligible for the consulship to have held those other positions as well. Yeah. So it's almost as if that you need to understand how every layer of Roman law and society operates in order to be eligible to hold the consulship. That doesn't really become official until quite late. It's in like 180 BC, we think, that um, we've got this particular law being passed, the Lex Vilia Annalis. Uh, which seems to sort of set out this... I believe Livy talks about that. Oh, of course he does, Dr. G. He talks about everything important. (laughs) She's giving me a death stare. Anywho, um, that's when it's sort of um, solidified. And by this stage, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I feel like we also need to acknowledge this. By this stage, the consulship also has become open to people who are plebeian, not just patrician. And this, ah, this yes. is another big step, which we've kind of uh, like 
slid over. One of the one of the big moments in the consulship, although people disagree exactly why it's a big moment, is in 367 BC. And part of the reason why this seems to be a big moment is that we do seem to have the opening up of the consulship beginning to more than just these very limited amount of patrician families. Yeah, so yeah. We, we have what is called the Leges Licinii Sextii, uh, which is a set of laws, a suite of laws that sort of pass um, within about a 20-year period from around about 387 to 367, which allows for the possibility mm. of plebeians to go for the consulship. Yeah. So the reason why this is a bit of a spoiler thing is because we are we have been spending a lot of time talking about the conflict of the orders and the battle between the patricians and the plebeians. And this, like these laws seem to be a bit of a win for the plebeians. They do, but you'd be surprised how little they get out of them because no plebeians get voted in for ages. True. But nonetheless, (laughs) there's the possibility, Dr. G, and that's what's really matters, isn't it? It's legally possible. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, but it does sort of start a process where by the time we're talking about the late Republic, the, the, the idea of being a patrician is kind of fairly meaningless because what you end up getting is really like a new, a new elite, the nobilis, the people who are well known, which is a blend of people who are both plebeian and patrician, but wait for it. They're all wealthy. Ah, (laughs) that's the kicker. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but there's nothing like old money, is there? Exactly. Nothing like being a patrician, even if you're down on your luck. Hey, Caesar. <laughs> yeah, so this is the thing. Like, Patrician is like an old kind of prestige by the time we get to the late Republic, but you don't have to be a patrician to be a consul. That being said, being part of the nobilis, it's still a fairly special club. I mean, this is, this is the thing we have to emphasize. If you want to be a consul, you still have to come from a fairly elite group of people. It's very rare to find people breaking through into that. And by breaking through, I mean being the first person in their family to become a consul. But it does happen. I this think. Is, yeah, this <laughs> yeah. is this is one of the reasons why Cicero ends up being so famous. Yeah. It's not just that we have so much of his writing, although that I, I, yeah. I suppose that also yeah. helps. <laughs> uh, but one of the reasons why we're fascinated by somebody like Cicero is because he's classified as a new man, a novice homo. Yeah. Uh, he comes through, he's the first in his family to hold the consulship, which is incredible when you think about the level of competition involved for this highest level of magistracy every family that's ever had a consular ancestor feels like they're entitled to it and it's probably their duty to go for it and work towards it yeah families with extensive estates and high levels of wealth are definitely going to be doing what they can with what they have in order to ensure the election of their brightest folk into that role absolutely and to have somebody who appears to have built a connection base from scratch, mm. uh, worked hard, made some money, now willing to spend it, yeah. and to actually persuade the voting system as it is to allow them through into that role, that's kind of incredible. Absolutely, yeah. So we do get these instances where it happens, um, and Cicero is a great example of that. But generally speaking, it's a pretty... It's a pretty jealously guarded privilege. <laughs> it's a small club. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
what would a, I mean, how would people know if the consul is in their vicinity, Dr. G? Because if this person is so freaking prestigious, uh, then you're going to want to know if you're hanging out with a consul. So, uh, you can <laughs> usually tell when they're coming. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, they have a bit of an entourage. Um, but the, so what's interesting for the consulship is that they do get to wear the toga pretexta, yeah. so the white toga with the purple border. This will set them apart. Very fancy. Uh, I like purple. I like yeah. purple. Mm. Mm. <laughs> a little bit of a nod to the old kings. Yeah. And they also will have with them, depending on the month. Totally. Uh, depending <laughs> on the month, 12 lictors. Yeah. They have to, again, this is one of those symbols of their power that they have to share Mm. With with their colleague, not with yes. everybody. <laughs> yeah. So so this is interesting. You might not be able to tell immediately uh, that you have a consul amongst you, uh, but if it's the right kind of month for them, and they have the twelve lictors, it always who are makes me feel like cascades, it always makes me think of menstruation. I. <laughs> Is it the right time of the month? Is it the yeah. right time of the yeah. month? Oh, look, he's got the Fasques and, and the Lictors with him. So a, a guy wandering around with 12 other people who are basically like this quasi bodyguard. Yeah. Um, who at any time could start beating you with these giant bundles of sticks. Yeah, the, the, the Fasques, uh, we talked about these quite a bit because they keep popping up. They are bundles of rods that are bound together with an axe. Mm. Symbols of the power that the consul has to punish you terribly. Yes, and yeah. sometimes the axe head will be visible and on show, and sometimes it will be uh, not visible, depending on the state of war and the location of the consul. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's very complicated. So, yeah. if he's within the pomerium, the sacred boundary of Rome, mm. uh, he won't have the axes visible. But as soon as he moves out beyond that and beyond the first mile, stone mm. uh, he's able to have the axes presumably when he's doing that it's because he is on some sort of military campaign or something one like would that. hope so yeah. and things get more complicated for the consuls with the lictors when there is a military expedition because the requirement then is to change who has the lictors day by day wow <laughs> I can only yeah. imagine that this would get very complicated. This, to me, sounds like something that has to be a much later addition to the consulship. Yeah. Uh, because early on, the consuls are often going off in completely different directions yeah. with two different armies. And the idea that the lictors might be spending like a good 12 hours each day running in between uh, to catch up to the right consul that they need to hang out with seems ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing that we should highlight. The consuls initially... Uh, I mean, the, the sort of legendary figures of the consulship because they are the main magistrates of the Roman Republic. They generally do have this military dimension to them where they are like legends, not just because they're wealthy and elite males, but because they do go off and fight in wars and fight in wars of expansion eventually. You know, and so they they do have this real... They, they, there are these sort of legendary general consuls, you know, consulares imperatores, you know. Um, they perform these magnificent deeds, particularly during... Um, these big moments where Rome was very make or break, like the like the Second Punic War. You know, these are the figures we're talking about because the consuls are in charge of the army by this stage. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. It must be by the time we get into the later Republic, when Rome has conquered a lot of territory, um, we do start to get a bit more of a division again happening, like a fracturing of the position where we've got ex-consuls going off to manage territory or even ex praetors sometimes and then we've got the actual serving consul spending potentially a bit more time in the actual city 
Um, and, and that's, as you say, where it's probably, that's it's probably around this time, I imagine that that kind of thing would be happening because otherwise it's ridiculous. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's a bit hard to envisage. It surely would be easier to give six to one and six to the other yeah. and be like, oh, look, you've got some of the lictors, you'll be right. Nobody's going to make a mistake. Or are they? Um, <laughs> oh my God, what if I've got them got the for another day? What am I going to do? Um, the other distinguishing feature of the console is the special chair. Ooh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, yes. The Cualis, which they can take around with them and sit upon <laughs> as, as they wish. I don't know if you get the Lictors to carry that or maybe somebody else in the entourage. Um, but, you know, they have a special chair as well, mm. which is a bit of a hangover from the sort of uh, the kingship, the monarchy. Yeah. I think the thing that strikes me and I hadn't really thought about before because, it, again, it kind of seems a bit ludicrous on a day-to-day basis, but this this kind of stuff, like particularly like the Lictors and, and the Fasgays, if they've got them, it's not just when they're on official business. It's everywhere they go. So we're talking about a society uh, where visual display is certainly important you know to to signify your status you know to to indicate to people um that there is a power dynamic going on in case you weren't aware of and i'm at the top (laughs) hi um so even if you were just going to the theater or you were just visiting someone's house the symbols of your office would go too and they would be left conspicuously on display so that people know exactly who you are and what you do at every moment because what's the point of having these power dynamics and this social hierarchy if people don't get to see it? <laughs> yeah, and this is this is like the classic sort of dis- conspicuous display of power yeah. um, which seems to be is very important and we can tell that for the Romans this is essential uh not just in the early period but almost all the way through yeah um the way in which you wear your clothing yeah. what it is that you wear who you have with you um, everything about your appearance is signaling something about your social position totally. and your legitimacy uh if you're a male and you're in a particular position of power yeah your legitimacy in holding that power and also i mean it, it's important to know who these people are as well because you need to know how to behave around them like you're not allowed as an ordinary citizen just to like walk between the lictors and the consul that's a big no-no oh man yeah exactly <laughs> and the lictors supposedly also make sure that people you know like if you're an ordinary citizen you stand up when you're in the presence of a consul or you know if you're on horseback you get off the horse <laughs> get down <laughs> yeah <laughs> um because you've got to show you've got to sh- show respect basically for these people um but i think the real question is why do you have to show them any respect oh, well <laughs> Obviously, because they are, you know, senior magistrates. They are the equivalent to the king. I mean, these are the guys. Yeah. These are the guys who are in charge of a lot of civic functions. and uh, They actually hold yeah. a lot of responsibility. So they I do. want to talk yeah. a little bit about that. Um, Ooh, are we going to talk about Imperium now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll leave Imperium to you. I want to okay. talk a little bit, first of all, about um, the fact that they take oaths as they come into the, the ah, position. Yes, yes, Because yes. um, at, at this stage, we've kind of been thinking about how powerful they seem to be and how they move about the world and yep. sort of the world moves apart while they pass through. I know, it is almost like the parting <laughs> of like the crowds. It'd be yeah. amazing. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> I wish I had my lictors with me. Exactly. Um, that'd make it great. <laughs> uh, but they do have an important responsibility to Rome. True. And it's not all take, take, take. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little bit of give. Yeah. Um, so they do swear an oath right at the beginning that they will conscientiously fulfill their duty to the state. Mm. And importantly, 
Uh, they also make it really clear in that moment that if something happens to their co-consul, they will definitely find a replacement. Yes. That's that very important. Then you have one man in power. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, look, if anything happens to my, my, my brother here in the consulship, mm. I will find a way to make sure there is another one. Even if I have to hold a by-election yeah. or even if we have to get an interact involved, that will happen. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't really want weird instances of uh, a single console. No. It does happen occasionally. <laughs> um, it's not good, though. No, it doesn't look good. Yeah. The Romans are very big on precedent, so you don't want to let bad things happen because then you've got a precedent. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so part of their responsibility is to be aware of Rome's situation in terms of its military relationships and strategic mm, alliances. Definitely. That's kind of their really big job. Yeah. Uh, particularly early on. Yeah. So they're... Well, we've kind of seen that, haven't we? We have, yeah. we have. And so they're have an important role to play in raising the levy. Yeah. Uh, make, putting out a call to create a standing army. Yes. Uh, which has to be done year on year. Yeah. Because of the nature of the role. Absolutely. And taking in messages and intelligence about where they should send that army. Yeah. Uh, making decisions in consultation with the Senate about what should happen there. And yeah. then actually sort of... I suppose part of the responsibility to me seems to be about charisma, essentially, mm. because you've got to be able to take these people with you um, out into the field. And we, again, we have seen that as well with the various battles that we've talked about, you know, when men have had to raise the troops or raise the morale or maybe actually talk the army into, you know, doing what they're supposed to do and fighting for you <laughs> because they're not so keen on it anymore because, you know, the lack of rights. <laughs> yeah, the lack of rights. Yeah. Um, and and I, I guess that, that kind of connects a little bit with this very Roman idea of octoritas, doesn't it? Um, which is this, it's a very hard to define concept uh, in English, but it, it is this sense of authority that a man has because of the things that he's done and his kind of character and his position in society. It's like a combination of various things which give you a yeah. natural sense of authority. And, and it, I, there is a sense in which there is um, a divine aspect to this as well. Ooh. Yeah, like it, it's difficult to have octoritas if the gods aren't on your side. I getcha. Um, <laughs> so, so one of the things that incoming consuls have to do yeah. is to request that the auspices be taken. Yes. And they're also looking for omens. Ooh. So if there is thunder mm. during this period lightning um, yeah <laughs> well lightning is good thunder is bad gotcha yeah yeah, yeah. uh lightning thumbs up consulship <laughs> can continue they have like a five-day period where they're looking for these sorts of signs right um thunder is considered very unfavorable mm. and a consul would have to abdicate from the office wow yeah just yeah. step down the romans really are a very superstitious bunch you sometimes forget that <laughs> mm. he's also got to like sort of put on his toga in his private apartment you well, know, I would hope so. Gotta, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't get dressed in public. <laughs> um, he goes out onto the capital, mm -hmm. sits on the special chair. Right. Everyone's like, oh, another <laughs> console, woo. Um, and a sacrifice takes place. Right. So he sacrifices a, a white uh, cow um, or bull. We're right. I'm not sure. Not okay. sure. Yep. Um, but yeah, a sacrifice has to happen. Yeah. It's public. It's visible. Yeah. And that's a pretty big sacrifice. That is a big sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. It's, it doesn't seem to be, as far as I can tell, like a, a small calf. 
It no. seems to be a large cow. Wow. Yeah. And all white too. And mm. all white. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so once all of that's happened, yeah. then everyone's like, woo, the consulship can continue. Um, because there is a sense in which uh, the octoritas of the consulship has also been endorsed by the divine. Yeah, yeah. The, go- the gods smile upon me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, cool. Well, the thing that the consuls actually are invested with is this power called Imperium. Oh, yes. Yeah, and this is this is really the official thing that is the key to both their civil and military authority. This is what gives them the power to enforce, you know, to, to use those rods, <laughs> to use that. Ooh. Yeah. Well, this this is like, I guess it's... I guess it's the, it's not really the way I would encourage people to think of it, but I guess the equivalent is like it's like their legal power in a way. Like it's like the thing that they have, which oh yeah, yeah, this is yeah, yeah, this is a legal thing. Yeah, holding imperium is a magistri- magisterial power. Exactly. Yeah, and not everybody has it. Uh, not every not every office comes with imperium. You know, that's the thing. It's only the very elite people that hold this kind of imperium, and if. If something goes wrong where your authority uh, or something like this is breached, this is where you are obliged to to sort of reinforce it, basically. And this is where the punishments would come in, you know. So if you do have, for example, like if you're some, if you're a consul and you're out on campaign and you know men aren't obeying, aren't obeying you, or, or you know, or doing what they're supposed to be doing, then you need to use your powers of office to. And it's not just about punishing them for you know disobeying orders. It's about not respecting the imperium that you hold. You know, you have to reinforce that. And again, it kind of comes into. I read this really interesting article which sort of highlighted how much that comes into it being also something that is displayed. You know that people you don't do this in private. You're not like, hey, Jake. You were being a bit of a douchebag out in the battlefield there and weren't really, you know, doing what you're supposed to do. So I'm going to punish you. But don't worry. No one will see. No, 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 no. It must be visible. Otherwise, how does it exist? Yeah. And, and we have already seen this kind of punishment take place in our stories that we've been telling about, you know, the early Republic. Um, you know, the, the offender might, you know, be stripped naked and then beaten with the rods. And if then things are really bad, they might be executed. Um, but yeah, that's that's part of the package. Uh, yeah, yeah, so this is like uh, moments where uh, uh, an enemy has been defeated mm. and they might be forced to pass under the yoke, mm. uh, which means basically passing under sort of like an arrangement of spears mm. in a visual display of submission, essentially, yeah. uh, to Roman authority. Mm. And that is really reinforcing for the Roman troops yeah. the imperium yes. of the consul. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Now, the tricky thing is, of course, that Rome does expand so much <laughs> in the Republic. It gets control of more and more territory, and governing these territories becomes, therefore, more and more complicated. And so even though you're not supposed to, eventually anyway, um, you know, ha- hold the consulship in a row or something like that, we do start to see dangerous precedents being set. Uh-oh. <coughs> Marius. <laughs> I feel like, uh, yeah, we've got some situations in the late Republic where we've got a real flouting, like Pompey also holds the consulship mm. with no partner. Yeah, in 52. Uh, yeah, yep, bit of an issue. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is, I mean, this is why people often say that Augustus is really just the end 
of a process that had begun a long time before where there were cracks in this system <laughs> well before he was a twinkle in Julia's eye. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and he comes along and, you know, comes up with a, a sort of new way of, of running things basically because the old system really wasn't working. Um, and, and you do have this immense competition um, amongst amongst people in the late republic for for power which is not healthy it's yeah. not it's not doing the republic any favors i think yeah a lot of people uh would probably be interested in thinking about the way that the civil war under sulla sort of yeah. changes things um the way that that kind of sets a bit of a precedent for people like pompey mm. and for people like caesar yeah uh, for the way in which uh, the consulship gets sort of transformed mm. into this like consul for life. Like what? What? Yeah, which is what? what Caesar ends up being essentially granted, mm. <laughs> um, and that's that's why he gets taken out because he ends up holding positions that are meant to be. I mean, all the Roman positions, all the magistracies, not just the consul, are meant to be temporary positions. Yeah, so something like the dictator, which is supposed to be an absolute position, yeah. um, and standing above the consulship in the sense that it relies on a single person, yeah. once that gets invested with a longer time frame, yeah. all of a sudden that is encompassing the lower magistracies that it's supposed to be supporting. Yeah. And it's meant to, the dictator is the one position that really stands above the consuls, but it's meant to be something, the consuls are meant to be involved in the process of choosing a dictator, and it's meant to be a short-term emergency position. Six months at best. Exactly. And even then, even then, the dictator does still have like a right-hand man, the magister equitum, who... He's not his equal, but he is someone that the dictator is working with. So even then, there's still this sense that there's kind of a collegial relationship happening there. Yeah, but we yeah. start to see a real change in the way that the consulship is conceived of yeah. in the wake of this uh, uh, sort of trajectory of the late Republic. Yeah. And it's fair to say, and a lot of scholars would also agree, that once we get into the Augustan period and mm. this imperial period... Um, from that point onwards is the nature of the consulship changes in a really essential way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting period to look at because essentially after Caesar's death, there is this tumultuous period where you've got the second triumvirate with Lepidus, Antony and Octavian. Sometimes they're getting along, but sometimes they're also fighting. So we've got continued civil war as well. It's still chaos. I mean, the last you know 50 or so years of Rome, the Roman Republic's existence is just chaos. Um, so there's a lot of chaos going on. I, I think that um, the, the last thing that's on, well, not the last thing, but certainly the consulship is not, and you know, the ins and outs of the consulship is not uh, the focus there. But once Augustus is the last man left standing, he has to figure out what to do. And he's, he does, he is clever, I'll give you this, Dr. G, in that he learns from Caesar's mistakes in that he knows he can't just be one guy with all this power out in the open. I mean, he does that for a while and it doesn't really work out that well because people start getting annoyed. Yeah, and so he what, what Augustus ends up claiming is that he restores the Republic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love this guy. Isn't he hilarious? Yeah. Um, and he does it by massaging the old Republican positions and magistracy so that he ends up holding the powers that he needs to do to essentially be a king without actually the title or any sort of title to be honest to oh. make it official or 
you know, it's just, it's a gradually, it's a gradual thing. But regardless of how he do, he does it or what position he holds or what labels he puts on himself, it does affect the consulship because you do have someone who's the princeps, which is a Republican term, but this is, this is the, the name I'm going to use to describe Augustus's position. We do have this princeps who stands above the consuls. Yeah, and this yeah. changes in substantial ways the nature of the consulship, particularly for, I think, long-standing patrician families who have seen the consulship traditionally as the pinnacle of their familial and ancestral success. Yeah. Um, to be in a position now or to live under the days of Augustus mm. and to find that the consulship does not hold the same weight. Yeah. Um, will not and cannot lend your family the same prestige. It's a bummer. <laughs> uh, that's, it's not just a bummer. I mean, some of them are really, really angry. True. Uh, the only thing is, and this is the slight, you know, <laughs> caveat, particularly early on in the piece when Augustus is still figuring things out. I mean, I shouldn't really even be calling him Augustus for some of this period. <laughs> Um, he does actually hold the consulship um, a number of times himself, like officially, when he's figuring things out. And there is still a certain level of competition to be the consul, because then you get to be the consul with Augustus. Hello. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Um, But part of the problem for this is that it's basically halved the capacity uh, of the competition. It's not great, but there's still a certain prestige in holding the consulship with Augustus. Only if you're pro-Augustus. True. Which a lot of them weren't. No, that's true. (laughs) Hey, Um, I wouldn't be running for that position. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, like, I mean, yes, there has, it does have the element of, yeah, you're in power with the guy who's clearly running the show. True. Um, so it's kind of like the endorsement of yeah. like the big head honcho. Mm. On the other hand, consular competition has really diminished. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is, this means that Augustus does end up facing a really, uh, substantial backlash, mm. um, from pro-Republican people who are kind of like not buying the restoration of the Republic line. No, and this is is the whole evolution that gets set in motion under this new system, which we now call the Empire or the Principate or whatever you want to call it, in that the consulship will always be something that has a lot of honour attached to it. But it is stripped of a lot of the things that used to make it or used to make the people that held it so esteemed in the eyes of the Roman public. And, and that's that the Augustus and the subsequent emperors generally try and make sure that these guys are not going to hold any sort of military functions. Like, And yeah, yeah. And this is really quite tricky because mm. the consulship initially is very much about being a military general. Totally, being in command. Yeah. And directly commanding troops underneath you. Yeah. And as Rome has expanded so much, they're more like a sort of like a, a general-in-chief kind of, it's mm. more of a a sort of a looking down from the top, but maybe not so much um, foot on the ground, feeling like you're actually involved in spearheading mm. some things. You might be at the head of a few legions, but there's also a few legions over there that you're also normally in charge of as well. Mm. And it's a much more strategic position mm. than it is, say, a combat position. Yeah. Um, so the stories of old consuls going in <laughs> and doing well in the battlefield uh, sort of slicing down their enemies by hand. Yeah. That that sort of 
that sort of time has passed yeah. in, in a way. And this is because, obviously, Augustus needs to make sure that these powerful politicians that he's working alongside, as do the other emperors, are not actually going to pose any sort of real threat. Um, and one way of doing that is to make sure that they don't have easy access to, you know, armed men <laughs> and they don't have the chance to build up a relationship or the prestige or any of those sorts of things that we've been talking about as being a part of this position. Um, so it is an honor, but it becomes very much like a political, as in, as in a civic sort mm. of position. Um, and yeah, your chances to distinguish yourself in other ways uh, it's a stepping stone to getting, say, you know, like uh, a position after this. Yeah. Like the pro consulship becomes yeah. a thing, which is like the the role that you can hold after the consulship, which allows you to be like the manager of a whole province yeah. and things like that. Which is obviously not something that would even be in the minds of early Republicans because no. they, they don't control anywhere near that <laughs> kind of territory. I was going to say, where would you send them? <laughs> where? Yeah, yeah there's yeah. nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, it's just Rome, guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I think that's the consulship. Yeah, yeah, basically it is. I mean, the only thing that I would flag is that in the early empire, and we're not going to go beyond that because it just gets too complicated because it evolves so much more, um, you do still get this sense of the honour of it in that um, emperors often hold the consulship personally when they want to lend prestige to a colleague and and this is often someone else in the family like Ah, like Augustus holds it alongside his two grandsons that he adopts and where for a while his heirs Gaius and Lucius you know Tiberius holds it um, as well alongside his son Drusus and even Sejanus you know it's meant to be and often they only do it once they're established as you know emperor um, to to lend prestige to their colleague um, and then uh, they might even they might not even hold it for the whole time because the numbers as well is something that's a little gets a little complicated once we get into the imperial period. But I won't I won't go down that road. It does hole. get yeah it yeah. does get more iffy and we do get more consuls um, yeah as time more goes on yeah uh, in one yeah. year yeah. <laughs> yeah it's very complicated but yeah that that's the consulship a very complicated um, <laughs> difficult position to study because our source material for it is not always great. Um, even the, the list of consuls, the Fasti, which uh, we often cite to try and give some sort of, you know, idea of where we're at in the time period, even they have been questioned as, you know, are they actually reliable? Uh, most people say that, yeah, they are generally fairly reliable, but even their reliability has been questioned. So, And it's interesting with the Fasti in particular, because if you have the opportunity to see an example of a Fasti, mm. then it's basically just a list of names. And the thing that that really does... Uh, reinforces this idea of consistency mm. and it makes you, you you kind of assume that the people who hold that position are always engaging in the same kind of role and that's just not the case um, the position is continuously evolving absolutely um, year on year it's kind of changing um, and the quasi sort of powers that we see it emerge from in the early Republic and the way that we see it change as the Republic continues and into the Imperial period is really quite fascinating stuff. Absolutely. So um, we have cited a few ancient sources and ancient examples throughout this episode, but I would just like to say that if you want a full bibliography, please check out our show notes um, for this episode. I particularly was using an excellent new volume called The Consuls and Respublica Holding High Office in the Roman Republic, um, because surprisingly... 
there is actually not a lot out there about the consulship, probably because it is really complicated. It is really complicated. <laughs> yeah. um, the main source that I've been relying on for this episode's uh, research is what is known as the Re- Real Pauli or the Raoul Pauli. <laughs> you have to be German, essentially. Um, I'll give it a whirl. It's Pauli's Raoul Encyclopedia de Klassenschauen Altumswissenschaft, which ancient historians and classicists will love. Yeah. Um, but it is essentially considered like a bit of a tome um, and a first port of call for any point of research. Um, this is a really old text. Um, the, it's still useful. It's still really useful. It gives you so many primary source references to go to. And the volume that I was uh, researching, because the consulship comes quite early on in the alphabet, um, was published in 1900. So incredible stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. And we just want to take this opportunity as well to say at 100, we're here still because we have listeners. Obviously, (laughs) we didn't think anyone out there was listening. We may have given it up by now. Yeah, no, thank you so much for everybody who tunes in, listens to us wherever you are. Your support is amazing to us, and thank you. Hey, lucky listeners of The Partial Historians, Dr. G and I have gone mad with the Saturnalian spirit and have quite the giveaway to celebrate our 100th episode of the show. If you would like to get your hands on your own Partial Historians t-shirt in classic black, all you have to do is follow these three simple steps. Number one, follow us on Instagram. Number two, like our t-shirt competition photo. And finally, comment on the photo in 30 words or less what your favorite episode has been of our show and why. Entries close on New Year's Eve and we will announce the winner in early 2020. Now enjoy that Saturnalian season. Be kind to each other and partial to the planet. Thank you to all of our dedicated listeners of The Partial Historians. It's Dr. G here, and I am super excited that we've made it to our 100th episode. This is a huge milestone for us. Um, And as a shout out to our patrons, I'd like to send our special thanks to Bonner, Joel, Sean, Sharon, and the aptly named Roman. Thank you so much for your support. Um, If you're interested in supporting or following our podcast in other mediums, we can be found on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now Patreon as well. Thank you for tuning in.